to begin with just a little game, uh, a word association game, all right? So I'm going to say a word, and, and, and I want you to just say what comes to your mind, okay? My word is, ready? Punch key. Fat Tuesday. Okay, now, the first thing, I never heard of until I moved to this area, by the way. And I don't know if it's Ponchki, Punchki, or Poochki. Actually, I've seen all three. And apparently, those who invented the word, and we won't identify any ethnicity, those who identified the word, I guess, aren't certain how to pronounce it either. Um, so if you are, you know, of that, uh, of that persuasion, Tim Bayless, uh, maybe you could, uh, you could let me know which is the, which is the correct p- pronunciation. Um, you know, I happen to have like a dozen of them up here. This was really distracting the worship team this morning, by the way. Um, they're not for you. So for my college and young professionals group, just want you to know these will be down in the room uh, for our time afterwards. I'm looking to see, uh, is, is one of them here right now? I, I know sometimes they're, they're asleep Anthony, of course, Anthony. And so, Anthony, I like after, can you come up and get these and make sure they make them to our room untouched by anyone else? And once they're there, uh, I will join you for, uh, that's actually a pretty heavy box. Um, so we have, uh, so, so, so punch key. Um, so my, my wife calls them punch keys. I've learned you don't put a plural on it. Punch key is already plural. So how's that for a for a lesson in ethnicity this morning. So you said, uh, I said Ponchki, you said Fat Tuesday. So I say Fat Tuesday, you say Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras. Uh, Fat Tuesday is just the English translation of the French words Mardi Gras. So so Mardi Gras, okay. Uh, Mardi Gras marks the end of Carnival. Yeah, we don't, let's say, and, and it's probably a good thing. Carnival, I, you, you may not realize that these are actually on like the, 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 the Western Christian and Orthodox calendar. On, on their liturgical calendar, Carnival comes after Christmastide. So they've been celebrating Carnival for a few weeks. It all wraps up on, on, on Tuesday with Mardi Gras. Uh, Carnival is observed with celebrations of parades and parties and indulgences and you see it in its worst forms in different places of the world where it's just like, they just cut loose. Um, because following Mardi Gras, Fat Tuesday is on that calendar. Ash Wednesday, okay, Ash Wednesday, which marks the beginning of, on the liturgical calendar, marks, marks the beginning of Lent, which is a 40-day period uh, excluding Sundays that ends the Saturday before Easter. You can put all that together. So, so thus, you know, Tuesday is the last day to really indulge. And, uh, and so uh, if you want to Ponchki, they're going to be on sale and everywhere in the Cleveland area on the next couple days. Lent was, was not a part of my church experience um, uh, growing up. Uh, perhaps it was for you. Maybe, maybe it is. Uh, for you. Um, the spiritual benefit of, uh, of making a cross of ashes on one's forehead may be questionable, as is giving up meat on Fridays, or donuts on Wednesdays, or 
chocolate on Tuesdays or coffee on Mondays. What isn't debatable, however, is the need for what Lent represents. It represents an awareness of sinfulness. It represents the need for repentance. And it represents, it's a reminder, if you will, that we are called, in Scripture, we are called to deny self, and to take up your cross, and to follow Jesus. I have to admit that I I do find a little bit of irony in our eagerness to celebrate victory on Easter while passing over darkness, suffering, tears, and lament that precedes that in the Lenten season. It's ironic. I think there is within... Christian culture, maybe American Christian culture, what I might call the lost art of lamentation. It's a foreign language to us. I remember quite a few years ago, I was in a prayer group, and at the time of prayer, someone began to lament. In all honesty, it was, it was true Lamentation. And I don't know that everyone quite knew how to respond to that. You know why? Because to us, tragically, lamentation sounds like a foreign language. We don't know what to do with it. We don't know how to interpret it. We don't know how to speak it. Shouldn't be. Easter Sunday is seven weeks away. And I want to encourage you, I want to call upon you to prepare for Easter Sunday by preparing through lamenting. We're going to do that um, here on Sundays by leading us through the book of Lamentations. It is in the Bible. Which I would submit to you means that God maybe has given us the language of lamentation, the vocabulary of lamentation. In all honesty, a series like that is probably going to be kind of depressing because it's rather dark. It's rather severe because in that book there is unspeakable horror. There is deep despair. There is future uncertainty. In fact, you're going to make your way through that entire book, and you're going to come to the end of that book, and the last verses of that book still leave you wondering, is there any future hope? Or is life just going to be one of perpetual hopelessness? Is there anything to believe in anymore? Is there anything to hope for anymore? It is a book in which an entire nation laments. I would submit to you that in this age of outrage in which we live, it would be a good thing for the church to learn how to lament. 
Because there are some things that we can learn through it. And the flip side, there are some things we will never learn if we never learn to lament. The passage that was just read for us, and I would invite you back there to Hebrews chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at that text down through chapter 5 and verse 10. In that passage, as it was read to us, we read of Jesus lamenting. And we were told in that passage that Jesus learned through it. And so the book of Hebrews... It's a, it's a book that was, uh, that was written to, to Jews who had become Christians. And, and these Christians were, were, were wavering just a little bit. I mean, they had given up, it would seem, all of their heritage, all of their traditions, all of their practices to follow this new way. And, and they're wavering a little bit. And so the writer of Hebrews is writing to them, pleading with them to not go back to the old ways, to the old covenant, to to the law of Moses and the practices of Moses and the sacrifices and the feasts and all that was a part of that, which they had found their spiritual meaning and spiritual significance in. Paul, uh, I I just betrayed myself. I think Paul's the the writer. He He is appealing, don't go back to that. And he does so by showing them and demonstrating that Jesus Christ is better than any of that. And the reason Jesus Christ is better than any of that is all of that stuff is just shadows. They they were shadows. They were real to the degree that they were meant to be real, but they were shadows. And a shadow is cast by something that is real. And Jesus Christ is the reality that was casting all of those shadows of those old ways. He's saying, don't go back to the shadows because the real has come and the real is Jesus Christ. And so he he goes through and he he, in several places in several ways demonstrates that Christ is better, that Jesus Christ is superior. And one of the ways he does it, and it's quite actually a very significant theme from about chapter 4 of Hebrews to chapter 10 of Hebrews is that Jesus is a better high priest. The high priest of Israel was the one who represented the nation before God. He's the one that went into the most holy place once a year with the blood of the sacrifice to make atonement for the sins of the nation and there to intercede and be the one who on behalf of the nation brought the blood to bring the satisfaction. That was the role of the high priest in Israel as the mediator before God. But then we come to this text that we read here in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Seeing, He says, we have a, a great high priest. A greater high priest than those that you read about in the Old Testament. Who has passed through the heavens. He has been here on earth. He has ascended to heaven. And who is that great high priest? Jesus, the Son of God. And because we have this great high priest... The writer says, you hold fast to that confession. Don't let go of him. Don't let go of that. Verse 15. He phrases this in negative terminology. I'm just going to flip it around and state it in positive terminology. For we do have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. He was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. We have a sympathizing high priest. He understands 
And so verse 16, therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace. Come boldly before God that you may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is this better high priest, which raises the question, well, does he really qualify? (laughs) Does he qualify to be the high priest? Well, why would that question even be raised? Well, you go back to the Old Testament, and to be a priest and to be the high priest, you had to be a descendant of a guy named Aaron. He was Moses' brother. They were both sons, if you will, of Levi. So you had to be a descendant of Aaron who was a descendant of Levi. Jesus was a descendant of David who was a descendant of Judah. Uh Uh-oh, wrong tribe. Wrong tribe. Jesus isn't in the tribe. He's not in in the lineage of those who qualified to be the high priest. And and the the writer goes on and says, let me tell you about about another line of priests. And that line of priests, you go back to the book of Genesis and we read this this mysterious character named Melchizedek. We're not going to get into him. But he's a priest. Recognized priest. And the writer says, Jesus is of that line. And so he answers the question, I mean, does Jesus qualify as our, as our high priest? And so in answer to the question, it's really a twofold answer. The, the writer says, absolutely, his divine calling qualifies him. We, we read in the text that, that God the Father said of Jesus, you're the one. You are the high priest. You're the one. He has a divine calling because not anyone can just step into that job. God has called him. God has appointed him into this job. And you see that in verses 1, verses 4 through 6 there of chapter 5. But also the writer answers it and says, yes, he's qualified, Because his sympathetic understanding qualifies him. You see, he's qualified because God the Father says, you're the one. And he qualifies because he's one of us. He's one of us. He came to this earth and he walked this earth like we we do. He walked in our shoes. He's been in our place. And thus... The writer says in verse 15, he does sympathize. He does understand completely. That's what the word means. He understands completely how we feel. He sympathizes with our weaknesses, our our frailties, our limitations. Jesus, who is eternal God, took on human flesh. So God knows what it is like to be a human being living in this world. He's been there. He's done that. And he came with all the limitations that that we have as human beings. He inherited all those things. You know, but we might still say, hey, 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 just a minute. You know, how can he truly sympathize? You know, and and that's a little bit of what the writer is saying in the opening verses there, chapter 5. I mean, think about this for for just a moment. Um, You know, the high priest back in Israel, he really could sympathize because he was a sinner like us. He knew what it was like to face these, these temptations and, and all these things and, and the anger and the frustration and, and, the, and, the, and the doubts and the disbelief. The, the high priest understood that, which is why in those verses, before he could go make atonement for the nation, he had to make atonement for his own sins. All right? But, but Jesus was God. Jesus can't sin because God can't sin. Uh, doesn't that make Jesus more like 
Superman living here on this earth, an ordinary man? You know, Superman who can, you know, stop a bullet and a speeding train and, and all, all, you know, upon whom, you know, gravity has no effect? Isn't, isn't Jesus, you know, more like that? Let me just say this, that these verses refute that kind of thinking. Jesus understands. He experientially understands all the weaknesses and all the frailties of being a human being living in this earth. He understands it all. Well, how do we know that? How, how do we know that, that, that he sympathizes, that he truly can sympathize with us? Well, look over at verses uh, 7, start at verse 7, referring to Jesus, who in the days of his flesh, okay, that's referring to his incarnation. It's referring to the time when, when the Son of God took on human flesh and he came and lived here on this earth. It's referring to his life here on earth, who in the days of his flesh offered up prayers and supplications. As you read through the Gospels, you will come away seeing very clearly that Jesus was a man of prayer. He prayed. He prayed, he prayed publicly. He, he prayed in, in places where his disciples saw him praying, as so much so that his disciples said, teach us to do that. But he also prayed privately. Mark one thirty five says that he would I would take it common practice that, that before the sun even came up, before dawn, he would rise from sleeping, because yes, he had to sleep because he was human. He would rise from his bed, and he would go find a solitary place all by himself, and he would pray. In the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications, and then this with vehement cries and tears, um, vehement cries, that's audible. That, that's loud cries. That, that's the voice of wailing. That's the voice of, of lamenting. It, it's, it's the cry for help of one who is deeply distressed or one who is in danger. It's the earnest petition of Jesus in agony. Same word that's used when it says about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wept at the grave of Lazarus. He wept over Jerusalem. I believe by implication what we see, he wept in the garden. There is nothing shameful about tears. There's nothing improper in weeping. Jesus did. So I guess real men do cry. A lot of people don't like to. You know why? It makes, sort of makes it uncomfortable, doesn't it? You feel a little self-conscious, don't you? When someone begins to weep and lament, you don't, you don't quite know what to do. Why? Because we don't know the language. We don't know the language. He offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able 
to save him from death, and he was heard. And yet he was not spared death. Look at verse 8. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience. How? By the things which he suffered. Through, if you will, through mental anguish. Remember, Jesus knew exactly who he was. Don't you think I could have called a host of angels to come and deliver me, guys? He knew exactly who he was. And the anguish of all that as he is as the creator of heaven and earth, and the creator of these who came out to arrest and abuse him, he made them. How dare they? The emotional anguish, you hear that, why have you forsaken me? Why? The spiritual anguish forsaken by God. And the physical anguish of the scourging and the cross, he learned through all of that. Through lamenting, he learned obedience to his father. See what verse 9 says, he was perfected. That does not mean that before this he was imperfect. It simply means, in one sense, his obedience was untested. And now, through what he went through as he came and lived among us, and as he died, now his obedience was on full display. It was not just theoretical. It was not just claims made in words. It was for real. Listen, I mean, you know, he obeys his Father in the splendor of heaven. Who can't do that? What about when he's on the squalor of this earth? Can he do it there? When, when he's despised, I mean, when he's worshipped and glorified, yeah, what about when he's despised? What about when he's rejected? What about when he's hungry? What about when he's tired? What about when he's worn out? What about when Satan won't back off? What about when death threatens him? What about when he's facing humiliation and incredible pain and abandonment of the Father? What about then? Oh, he obeyed. He obeyed. You see, Jesus experienced the weightiness of sin more than any of us. But unlike us, he never gave in. Which tells me this, that that none of us really knows the fullest extent of temptation. We only know the power of temptation to the degree when we give in. And we all have given in. Every single one of us has given in, not once, but let's not even go down the pathway of trying to name and number how many times we've given in. He gave in not once. He felt the entire weight and pressure of the temptation of sin, more than any of us have. In December 2017, there's a, there was a Chinese daredevil 
named Wu Yongning. And he was known for scaling skyscrapers without safety equipment. He filmed himself doing a stunt. He was, uh, he was doing it to, to raise $15,000 in prize money, part of which was going to fund his wedding, and part of which was going to be used to treat his sick mother. And so, in this film, don't do it now. You can, you can find it online if you want to. In this film, he is seen crawling over the ledge of a 62-story skyscraper. And, uh, and so he comes over the edge, and, and he's holding, just, you know, he can get his legs over. You can see he's trying to sort of get his feel uh, on some of all this. And so then, then he comes back up uh, on top, and you can see him getting his, his hands ready. Then he, he, he crawls over the edge again, and, and he grips that edge with his, with his fingers. Uh, he, he does in that film, he, he, so he, he stretches out full extension, and then he So here he is, you know, 62 stories above the street below. Here he is, and he does two pull-ups. He does another one. And then you see him trying to pull himself up, and he gets about there. And, and next thing you know, you see the leg trying to come up to see if he can get some leverage and, and get, his, get his foot on the side of that building to give him leverage to pull himself up over. And, and, and he makes several attempts, and he does it, and he does it, and he does it until he can't pull himself up, and he plummets to his death. What happened? He didn't have the strength to resist the pull of gravity. It won. He died. The fact is, he didn't experience the full weight of gravity. He only experienced as much of it as it took for him to fall. Can you imagine being able to hang on until gravity ran out, before strength gave out. Jesus outlasted temptation. He outlasted sin. It had nothing more, and he still had himself. Jesus endured the full weight of sin that was seeking to pull him down, not just once or twice, but every day. Hebrews 5, 7, the days of his flesh. Sin acted like gravity, but he held on, never once giving in. You're saying, yeah, hold, 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 hold it. Jesus, he still doesn't, he still doesn't necessarily get it all. Jesus was never married, right? I mean, so he doesn't know what it means, what it's like to have a spouse who's unfaithful or a spouse you can't get along with. He doesn't understand that. He, he, he wasn't married. You know, he he didn't have children, so he doesn't understand the heartache and the frustration and the anger of having kids. Hey, Jesus never had cancer. He never had heart disease. He, He never went through a debilitating illness or accident. He never lost a job. Did he ever experience prejudice? Listen, none of us have experienced it all 
either, but that does, does not diminish our human experience. And the truth of it is this. Think of, think of every fearful thought, painful emotion associated with any of those things. Any of those things. And Jesus has been there. He's been there. He did not sin, but he bore it. And then he was treated as if he had sinned. He sympathizes with you more than you can imagine. He sympathizes with you more than anyone else in your life. There's a reason he's called a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So don't tell me he doesn't understand you. He does. And he learned through suffering. He learned through tears. He learned through cries. He learned through lamenting. He knew the language. And he spoke it. So how can we learn? How can we learn through lamenting? Well, we can learn the anguish of sin. You see, Jesus was overwhelmed by the anguish of sin, not his own, but the sin of others that he was going to bear. He was going to experience horrifying physical consequences and heart-rending relational consequences. I mean, he was going to be abandoned by others and by his father. He was going to experience devastating spiritual consequences, forsaken of God. And the horror and the anguish of sin evoked loud cries from Jesus. I wonder if that's why the disciples fell asleep in the garden. They didn't know what to do with him. They didn't know what to do as he is there weeping and wailing and lamenting before his father. When was the last time you cried out in anguish to God because of sin in your life? Don't seem to be able to break this sin pattern, pastor. Don't know quite what to do with this. When was the last time you lamented over it and wept tears over it before the Lord? It's not just just the, the fact of sin that brings the lament. It's being overwhelmed by what it is. What can we learn? We can learn the anguish of sin. We can learn the cost of obedience. Overwhelmed by the cost of obedience. That's Jesus in the garden. This is what weighed on him. This is what, this is what lay ahead. It's not that he was unwilling to drink the cup of judgment. Is there any other way? Your will, Father. Your will. And so he would drink it all. He would drink that cup of God's judgment and God's wrath upon sin so that for any who trust in him, there's not one drop of God's wrath left to pour out on them. There's not a drop left. Jesus drank it all. When he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his godly fear. Jesus said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. 
And he went and he fell on his face and he prayed, oh, Father, if it's possible, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But not as I will, but as you will. Jesus humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Through lamenting, we can learn the cost of obedience. Because sometimes obedience hurts. Sometimes it hurts. We can learn the depths of love. We can learn the depths of love. Two years ago yesterday, my daughter-in-law lost her dad. She's grieving. Why? The depths of love. The depths of love. Jesus learned that in the days of his flesh. I mean, here he is on earth. There's his father in heaven. Scriptures tell us that the father loved the son and the son loved the father. That relationship took on a different experience on earth. Why do you think Jesus got away to pray? Not only that, Jesus knew the time was going to come when the Father would turn his back as the Son became sin. I think there's love that lay at the heart of his lamenting. The depths of it. Missionary and author and godly woman Elizabeth Elliot said, and I quote, she said, I'm not a theologian or a scholar. But I am very aware of the fact that pain is necessary to all of us. In my own life, I think I can honestly say that out of the deepest pain has come the strongest conviction of the presence of God and the love of God. When was the last time you wept because God loves you? Not just the fact that he loves you, but overwhelmed by God's love for you. Oh, he has to. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. I think these would be valuable things to learn in this season. The anguish of sin, the cost of obedience, the depths of love. So I invite you into this season of lamentation as we experience with Jeremiah and and Israel the devastation of their nation. As we weep with Jesus over Jerusalem and in the garden and as we join some devastated disciples who had lost all hope. I invite you to learn the depths of God's love for you. I invite you to anguish over the continual struggle with sin. And I invite you to count the cost of obeying God. Would you bow your heads with me? As I pray, in just a moment, I'm going to ask those who will be helping to serve communion if they would come and take their place while I pray. Because we are going to close our time by coming around the table, this table that represents 
and reminds us of the